Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing the incredible Nina Tysholes. Nina is an investigative journalist who for over a decade has specialized in food and nutrition. Her international bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, which carries the subtitle, Why Butter, Meat and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet, was book of the year for The Times, Wall Street Journal, and the BBC Food Programme. The British Medical Journal appraised the book, saying, deeply disturbing in showing how over-enthusiastic science, poor science, massive conflicts of interest, and politically driven policymakers can make deeply damaging mistakes. Nina has also written for The Economist, The Washington Post, New York Times, and many other publications. Nina serves as an Associate Director for the Center for Globalization and Sustainable Development at the Columbia University. She studied biology at Yale and Stanford and earned a graduate degree from Oxford. She lives in New York with her husband and their sons. Uh, I'm joined today by Nina Teicholz, who is an investigative journalist uh, specializing in health, who has written a great book, one of the best books I've ever read, called The Big Fat Surprise. What makes this book a little bit different it almost reads like a novel on, on the history of how we got things so wrong with nutrition. And uh, so, Nina, the first question is, tell everyone that's listening or watching a little bit about your history and, uh, and how you came to write this amazing book. Well, first of all, thank you very much for those nice words, and it's great to be talking to you. Um, well, I was, I am a journalist, but I, uh, I had been doing just a series of investigative stories about food and I was assigned to do a story by a magazine and to look into trans fats. At that point, I had no idea what trans fats are. It turns out there are fats that are made from vegetable oils. Um, so I looked into that and I started talking to researchers in the field and, and I started having these bizarre conversations with researchers where they said things like, yes, I was looking into trans fats and the president of the Margarine Association visited me and told me to stop my research and they were going to yank my paper out of the journal and they were going to, um, people would stand up at career at, at, at conferences and yell and scream at me for my findings. And I started to enter into this absolutely bizarre world of research about dietary fats. Um, not just trans fats, but I discovered like the question of the low fat diet. Was that even good for you? And was it, you know, was it true that saturated fats were bad, which eventually my book really focused on that question. But I had just expected, I'm the daughter of a, of an engineer and we've always had, you know, these extremely calm, rational conversations at home. And I always thought that science was like this calm and steady unfolding of observations, hypotheses, you know, and changing your ideas according to your observations. And instead I found like the wild world of <laughs> the wild world of the West, like people who, you know, industry 
being involved in science, scientists terrified to stop, even to talk to me, people who would hang up the phone on me. Right. They're like, oh, if you're going to ask me about dietary fat, I can't even talk to you. So, and I've said this before, but I mean, sometimes I would just get off these phone calls, like kind of trembling and shaking and thinking, wow, I'm, I'm like investigating the mob. Like what is going on in the world of dietary fat? And of course, dietary fat for anybody um, of our generation and, you know, and, 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 and others, I mean, it has been the thing that we have obsessed about most, uh, especially those of us who've struggled with our weight, but, you know, low fat, non-fat, good fat, bad fat, how much fat should we eat? Do we, should we shun all fats? You know, how, like, what should we do in terms of fat was sort of the guiding principle of how we decided what to eat our whole lives. So it just really sent me down the rabbit hole. And I ended up, you know, writing the story about trans fats, which got a lot of plays. I was offered a book contract. I thought I was going to write a book about trans fats. And then I realized, oh, I just need to write a book about all fats and how we got into this idea that fat is bad for health, that fat makes you fat, that the worst fats are those that are found in animal foods. And I mean, I just, I spent like almost a decade writing this book because I just couldn't believe what I found. <laughs> no, I mean, truly is an amazing book. And isn't it interesting, uh, you know, in the UK at the moment, you still don't go down the supermarket and they still make this massive deal of low fat this, zero fat yogurt, zero fat this, you know, very, very lean meat and so on. And I'm convinced the reason I was obese for 20 years of my life, even though I was jogging and running, is because I followed that low fat mantra because fat is bad for you. But you in this, this I would call this the Bible on, on, on fat. You, know, you, you go through the whole thing as a, not a doctor's point of view, not as... Uh, again, unfunded by pharmaceutical companies, unfunded by food companies. So I, you know, it reads as a truly independent opinion on, on, on fat. And I think we're all of the same opinion. You know, normal, natural, healthy, organic from animals or plants, as long as it's natural and the process doesn't involve ca uh, chemicals, then fat is good for us. It's what we've, we've always had. Um, so great, great book. But the book really is the history of how we screwed it up, isn't it? It's like the history, you took us from uh, the very beginning of us getting it wrong uh, all the way through to where we are today. So for those that haven't heard maybe the Ansar Keys story that maybe you haven't heard about Banting, give us a 10, 15 minute story of the history of how we've really set our generation, probably our parents as well, but our parents, our generation, and currently our children's generation completely on the wrong path. Give us the sort of the... People still buy the book, don't worry. <laughs> it's it's a summary of it. Well, and I feel like it is important to understand the history because we hear so many conflicting headlines about this and that. And it isn't until you really read the story and you understand, like, this book comes with 150 pages of footnotes. So part of why, that's why it took me 10 years. Like, really, to get to the bottom of the story, you, you want to understand the why. Like, how could we get it so wrong? It yeah. seems impossible. That's something that everybody agrees upon, all experts agree upon. How could we get that wrong? So, and the story really begins at a moment in time, which is in the 1950s in the United States, I'm afraid to say, our country began with us, where a, uh, a researchers, but particularly a researcher named Ansel Keys, who was a pathologist at the University of Minnesota, became obsessed with the question, what causes heart disease? Because heart disease, nobody really remembers this, a time living without heart disease, but heart disease was almost 
non-existent, very, very rare in the early 1900s, and then rose over the first part of the 20th century to become the number one killer in our nation, also in the UK, it was a little bit later for in the UK. And our president Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1955 and was out of office for 10 days. So the whole nation was absolutely obsessed with this question, what causes heart disease? Their fathers had not died in the prime of life and dropped down with heart attacks and died. And all of a sudden, men were suffering this, uh, this, this, this sort of mystery disease. And there were a number of theories about what caused it. One was that it was vitamin deficiency. One was the increasing amount of auto exhaust uh, that was from the greater abundance of cars in the streets. Other people thought it was a type A personality. You run around screaming and, and you know, all day long, and then you <laughs> die from a heart, you know, you roll over from a heart attack. But the one theory, and these were all legitimate theories that were published in scientific journals, but the theory that was proposed by Ansel Keys was that it was saturated fat and cholesterol, mostly found in animal foods. And he thought that those would um, raise your blood cholesterol and that they would like, like oil in a cold stovepipe, you know, clog your arteries and um, clog them up and give you a heart attack. That was his idea. And it was called the diet heart hypothesis. And he was an extraordinary individual in terms of being able to promote his idea in the world. He had an unshakable faith in his beliefs. He thought he should be right until proven wrong, which is the exact opposite of science. You're supposed to be wrong until proven right. <laughs> he was able to, to win the ear of various influential people. He was, he including President Eisenhower's doctor. Um, and, and most importantly, he was able to maneuver sort of elbow his way onto the nutrition committee of the American Heart Association, which at the time was the only organization really anywhere in the world that was solely focused on heart disease. Or I should say it was the most important organization anywhere in the world. And once he got onto that committee, whereas before that committee had said, look, we don't have, we don't have good strong evidence about what causes heart disease. Ansel Keys gets on that committee and he says, the committee shifts 180 and despite having no greater evidence, all of a sudden they are issuing in 1961 the first ever advice to uh, anywhere in the world telling um, people to avoid saturated fat and cholesterol, cut down on red meat, cut down on, um, on eggs, on, on whole fat dairy in order to prevent heart disease. That is mm -hmm. the first recommendation anywhere in the world uh, and it grew into this, like, the giant web of, of advice that we now have worldwide. Isn't that amazing that the first advice anywhere in the world, certainly in the westernized world, America, Great Britain, and so on, uh, isn't it amazing that the first bit of advice was in 1961? And if you look at all the stats back then of heart disease, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, diabetes, in fact, more, more, in fact, let's take the heart disease one out, but certainly diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, all these they were a fraction of the problem that we have today as soon as the governments got involved. Well, obesity, obesity and diabetes didn't even, you know, weren't even in the picture at that point. They were not considered threatening diseases. Um, they, could, they, were, they hadn't even begun their epidemics because the effect of Ansel Keys' advice was to say, okay, we're going to avoid those foods which naturally contain fat. Their idea was eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, which is pretty much the advice we're still given today. And if you eat meat or dairy, it should be lean and you should not eat that much of it. Yeah. That's the same advice that we have. It's fair, pretty much the same advice that we have today. Um, we can talk later about how it's changed. But that 
in effect, uh, is a low fat diet because you naturally reduce fat in that diet. And then actually the, the American Heart Association formally uh, embraces a low fat diet in 1970 because they, they, it was just, this is what their logic was. It was not based on any clinical trials, no evidence whatsoever. They just said, look, fat, there's three macronutrients, fat, protein, carbohydrates. Fat has nine calories per gram. Uh, protein and carbohydrates have about four or five calories per gram. So just as a matter of conserving calories, why don't we throw out fat? Let's just go for a low-fat diet. And it was just thought it would be prudent to, you know, to keep the calories down without understanding anything about what does fat come in? Those foods tend to be the nutrient-dense foods. What happens, fat and protein are naturally satiating foods. So you can eat, they've done experiments actually where they give people a stack of pork chops and say, you know, you must eat all of these. And they say, well, I can't because you, yeah. you can't overeat on those foods. But we all know because they're satiating. Yeah. They provide satiety for, there's a number of theories why, but they do. Whereas carbohydrates, which we started eating vastly more of, more grains, more, um, more bread, more pastas, those do not, are not satiating. And, and, and as any of us knows, you can never get to the bottom of how many cookies, crackers, popcorn, chips that you, at least I could never get to the bottom of how much I could overeat on those foods. And they've shown, you know, they've shown that also scientifically that people tend to overeat on those foods. Well, you do because, you know, you eat it, it turns into sugar very quickly inside the body, insulin goes and grabs it, it puts it in that fat store, and now all of a sudden you're depleted in insulin, you're depleted in sugar, you're hungry again, and of course the thing you become hungry for is the thing you last ate because that's what you've got memories of in the brain and all the neurotransmitters and what have you, so you just keep eating and eating and eating. Like you say, if you put a plate of salmon out, you get full quite quickly. Right. Right. Well, and there's, you know, there's, uh, there's a whole, uh, you know, the, the particular combination of fat and sugar and salt is, is, is sort of, it's been shown to cause people to overeat for uh, some reason. As you say, you have these blood sugar spikes and then you crash and then you, you know, whereas fat and protein keep your blood sugar very low. So you don't have those kinds of crashes, um, at which point you become des desperately hungry. There's some evidence that sugar itself is addicting. So, I mean, there's just... So anyway, but that was the beginning of the low-fat diet, yeah. and and so um, and that's been you know the history. So that's now we are, we're fifty years into basically low-fat eating, right? Low yeah. avoiding fat, and even though, and I want to say these are the changes that have happened in the U.S. and and I think largely in the U.K. Um, that we've we our policy no longer says low-fat, <laughs> so we're not actually supposed to eat low-fat. But all the, the, you know, if they, everything that's served, that the government serves, like all of our school lunches and our military food and hospital food and everything, like in the UK, is still, is still basically low-fat food. Yeah. And we're still told to, you know, either eat lean meat or low-fat dairy and 2% milk and cut out any whole-fat foods, any normal foods. And I know you have a not-for-profit organization. Really, is it at its heart, if I understand this right, it's a bit like we have one called... Uh, uh, healthdaddy.com, we're trying to lobby the government to change what we call the Eat Well uh, guidelines, the Eat Well plates, which sadly we copied. We cut and paste verbatim from America in, in the 70s, and we haven't changed it still. So you had your pyramid with all your carbohydrates at the base, and we have this 
sort of plate, which is pretty much carbohydrates, which infuriates me because my dad is diabetic type two, injecting himself every single day. And the advice from his doctor sadly was, well, just eat less of everything, which is complete nonsense for a diabetic. So I set up a, a not-for-profit to try and get us to change uh, the guidelines. And we had a big conference at the PHC earlier in the year, and I got every single doctor to stand behind a massive 60-foot-long banner saying, change the guidelines. You're doing the same with uh, your not-for-profit. I'm sure you're doing it in a much better way than I am at the moment. Um, but tell us about your, uh, your not-for-profit and uh, you know, why you think it's important that we change the guidelines. Um, well, first of all, I'm really happy to hear about your not-for-profit. Um, I didn't know about that. But I, um, my not-for-profit is called the Nutrition Coalition. Um, I think it's important just to say here uh, that my work and the work of my organization, we have no connections to any industry of any kind. Um, so we... Yeah, Cows don't seem to do a lot of sponsorship anyway, do they? Yeah. Maybe what I realized, like the meat industry, small players, small farmers, you know, not with huge, uh, you know, all the other people you're fighting with tend to be, you know, sponsored by Pepsi, by Nestle, by Cadbury. Yeah, big corporations or pharmaceutical, you know, all the pharmaceutical yeah. companies that, you know, to be, you know, to be honest, they, 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 they're profit. They're not profiting if you're getting well. So they have no interest in really, truly in, in better health. So we, our money comes from um, wealthy people who, uh, you know, who improve their health or healed themselves or reverse their diabetes or got over whatever condition they had by going on, by doing the opposite of what the guidelines tell them. And then they would say things to me like, well, why do, I, you know, why do I bloody have to find this out in a book? Your book, Nina, you're just a journalist. <laughs> and why don't I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a rich man. I go to, you know, I have 10 doctors and nobody told me this. And, um, and I say, you're right. You should find this out from your doctor. That is exactly the point. But um, as I came to discover only really after writing my book, that the guidelines are so powerful in your country and in the U.S. The U.S. is maybe the most powerful because everybody tends to refer to our guidelines as the gold standard, and um, and they control so much. You know, they control so beyond what I already said. You know, the military and school lunches and hospitals and every place you can. Everything is controlled by the guidelines. Um, they also are kind of downloaded to all doctors, nutritionists, nurses. Um, dietitians. And so you may think, you know, I don't go to the government to get my nutritional advice and you don't, but it finds you because it is disseminated out through every single health practitioner's office in every clinic and in every hospital with the exception of, you know, just a handful. Mm -hmm. So I realized that, you know, guidelines need to change because they're not based on good science. Yeah. Um, and this has sort of taken me down the path. I mean, our group does not prescribe any one diet. I have my own views about diet, but mm -hmm. our group is really just wedded to trying to ensure that the process is rigorous. We don't have to get too far down into the weeds about what that means. But, you know, the basic thing is there's a very weak kind of science called uh, epidemiology, which shows only associations. Um, and associations of, and diet are, you know, based on people's, what they report on a food frequency questionnaire, like what mm -hmm. do you eat for the last year? And, it's so unreliable and nobody remembers what they ate even yesterday and yeah. they lie. <laughs> They're always like want to make themselves look better. Even to themselves, they lie. <laughs> and that data is used as the basis for our population wide recommendations. 
So, and when they actually do more rigorous, actual experimental tests, you know, where they, it's like what they require, if your doctor's going to give you a drug or pill, yeah. it is required that that pill go through a rigorous test, yeah. you know, which is to divide people in two groups, right? Give one people a pill, one per people, one group a placebo. And then at the end you see, you're just testing the pill, right? Yeah. They, they, and then you can't, if that, if that pill doesn't pass that test, it can't be prescribed to you yet. We prescribe diets based on almost no evidence at all. Not, they're not based on those rigorous kinds of trials. Every time they do those trials, they find out that the current advice is, is they can't find out that it works. So that's part of the story of my book, which is really kind of amazing and dazzling and was to me when I stumbled on this, that they did hundreds of millions of dollars worth of these huge nutrition studies, these big trials, the kind of rigorous science you're supposed to do. And every time they finish them, they find out the diet doesn't work. Cutting out fat, saturated fat and cholesterol didn't work. It didn't spare people heart disease. The more the men lowered their cholesterol in the biggest ever experiment test of Ancelkeys hypothesis, the more the men lowered the cholesterol, the more likely they were to have a heart attack. So it's like everything came out wrong. And the people in, at our, uh, in our you know, health institutions just couldn't handle it. They were, I mean, this is putting it sort of in simpleton's words, but they couldn't, they just couldn't believe it was true. They were like, either it, there must be something wrong. We did it wrong. We have to do it again. They, they didn't publish their studies. They didn't publish their results. Thing, I, we found things in basements at the National Institutes of Health that hadn't been published saying, you know, actually saturated fats have no effect on heart disease at all. So we did all these rigorous studies and they were all ignored or excluded and never looked at. And so part of our work um, today now with my not-for-profit is like saying, you must look at these studies that were done. Everybody's saying we need more money for nutrition studies. We need more money. We don't know what to tell people. We don't have any data. Well, actually we did do all these huge trials, but we ignored them. We stuffed them. We didn't publish them. They, you know, so. Can, 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 I, just, can, I, just, can I just summarize that opinion then? So what you're saying is, there was lots of studies done to see whether fat was the bad guy, to see if cholesterol right. was the bad guy, but they'd already come up with that hypothesis and that's what they wanted to stay with. In fact, uh, I think it was Tim Noakes or somebody said, uh, you know, it's hard for somebody to change their opinion when their salary depends on it. Right. Uh, so they, we're saying fat's bad, we're saying cholesterol's bad. So let's go and do a load of research to prove our point. But all that research they did, and they spent millions, and this isn't just one piece of research, wasn't it? There were numerous, numerous uh, researches over the years. and all over the world. They, all over the world. And every time they did that study, it proved completely the opposite to the advice they were given. So it was, I, I had one, I think it might have been in your book, was buried in somebody's garage that they found 20 years later when they were clearing out. And every time they did the research, it just said there is nothing wrong with saturated fat. There's nothing wrong with, well, you can't really link cholesterol and heart disease. And, and that's kind of what you uncovered as, a, a, as an investigative journalist uh, through all your studies. Is, is that, have I got that right? Or? That is correct. So, yes. And the, and so they, but, but the researchers and policymakers, that by this point it had already become, become sort of the policy of the American Heart Association, then became the policy of the government, and they were unable to reverse out of their policies. 
Yeah. You know, you're seen as being weak. You you can't, you know, there's so much cognitive dissonance in your mind. You can't believe you might've been wrong. You don't want to be seen as flip-flopping on the public. That's not good for the trust of your institution. So all kinds of reasons. Oh, and the food industry is invested in your policy at this point. And so there's all sorts of reasons why you can't reverse out of your policy. Yeah. But and our challenge, our, so our first challenge really is just to say, we may not know what the ideal diet is, but we know that the advice that we're currently giving has been tested and shown not to work. So mm -hmm. let's not, let's at least roll back the things that we know are wrong. Yeah. Can we at least just step away from the things that we know are wrong and not, and, and were tested and they just, they just have not been shown to be true. So let's, and that means, and, and countries have already done this quite a bit, they would just to drop the caps on cholesterol the whole reason that, you know, people have been avoiding egg yolks and shellfish and for years, um, decades, really, um, that those caps have been dropped because mm -hmm. the evidence really was never there. Yep. They tested, not found guilty. So, you know, it's like if you get, send an innocent person to jail, you know, and then you get the DNA test back and you're like, you know what? You can get out of jail now. Mm -hmm. Same thing for saturated fats. Tested, not guilty, should be, get, should be let out of jail. That's it. Yeah, I mean, and and so and there's now been since um, my book um, and also the work of Gary Taubes, who also talked about these sort of hidden, buried, ignored studies. There have now been more than 17 teams, independent teams of scientists from all over the world who've looked at those clinical trials, again, the most rigorous kind of data and done what's called a systematic review of them and found no effect of saturated fats on heart disease. The last one that came out was a review of all these 17 papers, which we could put on your website if you like, but it says, it says maybe there's no effect of saturated fat on heart disease, so maybe it's time to reconsider the diet heart hypothesis and whether Ansel Keys may have gotten it wrong <laughs> or it needs to be modified in some way. So, um, so, uh, so, so, you know, we have, so that is just clearly not supported by the literature. I'm just trying to think about other things that have been tested. I mean, these are such a, bunch of random things, but you know, they cannot find any health benefits to eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. There may be some, but they can't find them. Yeah. Whole grains, they cannot find any benefit for heart disease or diabetes or fighting obesity of whole grains, even though we're told to eat those. Yeah. Um, isn't, part isn't part of the reason that we were told to eat those that in Nixon, uh, President Nixon times, they subsidized so heavily the farming industry. They were trying to drive down the, the cost of food to get reelected. So that from a public point of view, they're trying to drive down food. So therefore they subsidizes, uh, you know, basically the carbohydrate industry uh, to help bring down the price. And therefore even governments have egg on their face. If all of a sudden we say now, well actually, you know, fat's not uh, the bad guy at all. Maybe it is just sugar and things that turn into sugar. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember, you know, in, after World War II that people were starving. And so carbohydrates are cheap food. Carbohydrates are peasant food. And so investing in more bread for in, in cheaper bread and all of that, you know, I think back in the time when there was undernutrition, malnutrition, that, that those kinds of policies probably made sense and were in good faith. But now telling people that they can fight their obesity and their diabetes and heart disease by eating a high carbohydrate diet, which is what we're telling our publics, is simply not supported by any scientific evidence. And in fact, it very likely makes those conditions worse. So we're really in a terrible situation where 
Um, we have this very powerful, these very powerful government policies and, and they're probably worsening the very diet related chronic disease they're trying to prevent. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's beyond tragic, really. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, it's just terrible policy as a matter of like, for wonky policy people, you're like, why do we have policy <laughs> that's not based on good science? And that's been disproven. Now, there's, without doubt, you're extremely intelligent. Your book is brilliant. Um, and I hope you take this the right way. Prior to writing it, I've read elsewhere that you were vegetarian for quite a long time. Uh, but I believe now you, 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 having done all this study, have, have realized that you, you need to get the diet more balanced in, in the terms of not being vegetarian. Tell us about your journey and your family's journey and your, your two sons' journey. Yeah. Well, I was a vegetarian. I mean, not a strict vegetarian, but I, I didn't eat for about over 20 years. I didn't eat red meat at all. I thought red meat was the worst possible thing you could eat. And then, and butter, I didn't eat. And I had very little cheese. And I mostly, I ate lots of carbohydrates. I used to eat my own, I actually lived in the UK for a while. I, I made my own seven grain bread every week. And I was so proud of myself. And I made lots of pasta salads. And I was, I was always, you know, not hugely fat, but I was, you know, good 25 pounds heavier than I am now. And, you know, that as a young woman, that's enough to kind of just bump you out of the dating market. <laughs> so I was just a little chubby and, um, and not very, you know, it, it really, I mean, I, I, I feel like that's nothing compared to all the stories that I've heard of people struggling with real obesity and disease. So I'm grateful that didn't happen to me. Um, but I was, um, so, and that was really my life until I started researching this book. And then I, my first child I had as a vegetarian mother who was anemic. I was anemic. Um, I was always anemic during this time. And I fed my first child a vegetarian diet too, when he was very young, which, um, was not a great idea, um, for, well, for us turned, you know, not, we did not have a healthy first child. Mm -hmm. And then I started researching this book and I started realizing that all the nutrients that I needed were in meat and so that I needed to start eating meat again. And that reversed my anemia and reversed all kinds of health problems. And then I went on a fairly low carbohydrate diet, um, which I'm still on and have been for, you know, over a decade now. And, um, I sort of waver in and out of it, but, um, <laughs> I, I like to say, you know, my favorite carbohydrates are the ones that I drink in red wine. <laughs> so they're on the same page. Uh, but um, uh, you know, and I and I and I wrote a, a, an essay about how hard it was to start eating red meat again and to cook red meat. I thought was the hardest, just extremely hard for me because I had built up such a phobia of it. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that as a vegetarian, I was such a passionate cook. You know, it takes a long time to steam and roast and, you know, chop and dice and all the things you need to do to get ready for a vegetarian feast are so laborious. And I now I've become the laziest cook in the world. I think my children don't even know that I could cook anything because I just, just put, you know, all I'll do is... Put on, put on steak or put something in the slow cooker and just let it cook. I just find it's much easier to cook now. Anyway, and I'm much healthier and I'm thinner without exercise. I used to exercise every day. I used to swim a mile or jog six miles or bike 25 miles or do some form of exercise while I remained fat. Um, yeah, we now, have exactly the same story, Nina. You know, I 
I ran marathons. I even trekked to the North Pole one year. I ran marathons. And the whole time I was three stone overweight, training every single day. Now, if I go to the gym two or three times a week for half an hour, that's it. I walk a lot, but I don't jog anymore, don't cycle anymore, cut right down on the weight training. I feel fitter. I'm, we're both the same age. Uh, and I feel fitter, healthier than I've ever been, don't get colds anymore, and don't really have to exercise anywhere near what I used to. And, you know, I'm the way I want to be. So, yeah, how we all got it so, so wrong. And I heard recently that you're, you're one of your sons... Um, you, you know, I, you said something, you said with a, I think you said with a nutritional nut as a mother, <laughs> which is exactly what, where I'm at. My kids go, dad, you're a, you're, you're, you're a sort of health activist, you're a nutritional activist. And, and they, they always put the blocks up. They go around the corner, have a pack of crisps and sneak some cereals at home when I don't realize. Um, and, and one of the hardest things is trying to get your own children to, to move the right way when it's your parents giving advice. Um, but you've done the same with your son. T t tell everybody about that journey, what to look out for. Let's say, let's say we've just in the last uh, 25 minutes convinced somebody, look, fat isn't bad. We think too much sugar is what drives insulin. Well, we know that's what drives insulin. And we think insulin might be a catalyst for heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, strokes, and so on, and certainly obesity. So if somebody wants to make that switch from being a sugar burner into a fat burner because that's the only real way to lose your weight give us some tips on how to do that the journey uh what we should have in our cupboard yeah you know, what that give us a shape of what that first few weeks looks like yeah okay so um i, I want to just say a little bit just a word about the science that there's that everything i'm going to talk about is based on now a very large and fast-growing body of the most rigorous kind of science, randomized controlled clinical trials. There are more than 100 clinical trials now on low-carbohydrate diets that are usually high, then if they bring down carbs, they're higher in fat. Um, and so, so they're higher fat, high fat diets, low carb. And low carb is, you know, below 20, 25% of your calories is carbs. Ketogenic means below 10% of your calories is carbs. And these diets, consistently um, lead to significant weight loss better than can their control diets and um, can reverse, have been shown to reverse type two diabetes and improve the vast majority of cardiovascular risk markers. So they really, there's a really large body of scientific knowledge behind this. Compared to, I should say, the Mediterranean diet, which we think is the gold standard, you know, there, there's really one clinical trial on the Mediterranean diet, which showed a 0.2% uh, increase 0.2% uh, in improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. And that study was retracted and then reissued the same day with a lot of questions remaining about its data. So, so just compare that one Mediterranean diet trial with over a hundred on low carb. Um, so um, what we're talking about here is supported by science. Um, I think it's fair to say. If you want to go on a low carb diet, um, and and I want to just save for I'm going to save for a little bit, like especially the, the kids question because they're a unique parenting to the kids is a unique challenge um, in our in our food environment. So, but you know what you're basically doing when you go on a low carb diet is you shift from being a glucose burner, which means you burn sugar as your fuel, right? And when I say glucose, I don't just mean sugar. I mean that when you eat rice, when you eat bread, when you eat pasta, that the moment it goes inside your 
body, it becomes converted to sugar. So that is also sugar. So is fruit. Uh, fruit is high in sugar. So when you're, uh, most of us, most of our lives have been sugar burners. Um, and that means we, we go up and down, we are sugar, we eat some pasta or fruit and our sugar goes up and then it goes down and that's when we feel hungry and we need to eat more and we have to go up again. So even if you're a thin sugar burner, you're like, oh my God, I'm starving because I, or, you know, if you're an athlete, that's when you bonk because you need to have that constant stream of sugar coming in your body. When you convert over to being a fat burner, it's a little bit like, you're becoming a hybrid car, right? So, and that is a complex thing for a human body to do, right? You're upregulating certain enzymes, you're downregulating other enzymes. You have to develop this whole new fuel source. You have to develop all the, the all the all the enzymes to be able to operate off this different fuel, which is fat. And you can, and and why do you want to operate off of fat? Like, what's what's the benefit of that? Well, I'll tell you the simplest benefit is when you become a fuel burner you don't just operate off the fat you eat, you operate off the fat on your body when you're not eating. So, you know, your body, fat on your body is not just a curse that, you know, God gave you <laughs> to, to like have a bad, you know, teen, teenage years or whatever. I mean, it's, fat is a genius invention so that it's like having granola bars strapped all over your body. You're like, oh, when I don't have food at, you know, at my right here in front of me, I can just use some fat here. Here, I'm going to use this fat on my hip. And that is supposed to be your backup source of fuel. But you cannot access that fat on your body unless you know how to be a fat burner, unless your body knows how to burn fat. How do you do that? You have to reduce glucose because glucose is the preferred fuel over here. As long as glucose is present, you're going to burn glucose. It's an easier, faster fuel. So you have to keep glucose low. That's why you have to reduce carbohydrates. Once you keep carbohydrates low for a while, your body will develop the ability to, be, to burn this alternate fuel source, which is carb, I'm sorry, which is fat. And that process takes a while, right? That's why in many of the low carb diets like Atkins and some of the other ones, they say go super low on carbs because you want to get through that process. It'll make that process happen faster, but it can, for people who are, you know, metabolically unwell and who've had bad metabolisms for a long time, it can take a really long time. That process of transformation to becoming a hybrid car, that can take like over a month, it can take 6 weeks, it can it can really take a long time and that process can be painful. You have headaches, you have dizziness, you have nausea, you don't feel good. You feel, you know, you it's like flu-like symptoms. They used to call it the Atkins flu. You can somewhat mitigate that by having a couple of cups of, of bone broth every day. And I don't mean you have to cook your own. You can take one of those little bouillon cubes and, and dissolve it into boiling water. And that's fine. That because you're, because part of your symptoms are caused by, caused by the loss of salts in your body. And so, um, so you have to go through that process. It's another reason why these short-term experiments that people are still doing are like, oh, I'm going to try it for two weeks and see how it does. And they feel like, I feel terrible. <laughs> well, yeah, you feel terrible. Your body's undergoing this huge transformation. It's probably the most you've asked your body to do, you know, your whole life. Well, it's kind of like giving up smoking or giving, giving up drinking, isn't it? You know, even, smokers will say that even though no smoking's bad for them, that first few weeks is hell. But once you get through, their life is blissful. So alcoholics and sugar. Get over, you get over to the other side. Sugar is addictive. You've got to tell your body to stop craving it, stop craving it. And, and there are certain uh, hormones and certain enzymes that will make you feel, uh, you know, lousy for a while, but yeah, 
Some people, depends how much they've messed it up, exactly what you just said. You know, if they've really messed up the met metabolism in the past, could be a month. Others can get over it in a week. But, uh, but the benefits, once you get to the other side, the good side, the grass is greener. Yeah, I mean, people feel better and they lose a lot of weight and they, you know, they recover from all kinds of illnesses that they didn't even know were diet related. Like who knew my sinus infections were related to my diet? I had no idea. But all of a sudden those chronic sinus infections, which I was taking antibiotics multiple times every winter, I haven't had one in many years now, knock on wood. But, you know, and, and one of the criticisms of the, you know, going on a keto diet or a low carb diet is people say, well, it's hard. It's hard and it's not sustainable. But, you know, what is harder? It is harder to live as an obese person. It's hard to take five pills every day for your blood pressure, for your, you know, it's hard to live with diabetes. It's hard to inject yourself with insulin. That is harder. And when they say, well, keto is not sustainable. You can't sustain it. Well, actually, you know, recently they published it. There was a survey published showing that people had sustained it for years. So there's just, you know, there's just data out there showing that people do sustain that diet. But, you know, what is unsustainable is being sick. Being really sick, you know, not being able to walk up a flight of stairs, not being able, you know, feeling so bad you can't go to work, feeling depressed and lousy, and, you know, and, and, and constantly being on medication and getting fatter and fatter. So, I mean, that is what is unsustainable. Um, yeah, I think people have to, it's, yeah. me if you think differently, but it is just like somebody giving up smoking. I confess I had years when I was a smoker. And you think, how am I going to live without cigarette? How am I going to, but eventually once you do give up, and get to the other side, everything is much, much better. It's just that. Well, and then there's another aspect to it, which is that, um, that you're, and you can't imagine it when you're on the, and look, I, you know, I used to eat one of those huge dairy milk bars <laughs> practically every day when I lived in the UK. I love those creamy dairy milk. And I had bread and I was like, if you could have said to me, you're going to give that up, you, you know, you, I, I would have said, forget it. There's just no way I can, I can, I can't live without it. But what happens is your palate actually changes. I know Tim Noakes talks about this too, which is that what you want and your taste for sweetness goes away. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You wouldn't think it's possible, and maybe it is like smoking, which is this idea that what tastes sweet to me now is that like ninety percent dark chocolate is enough sweet for me. If it's sweeter than that, I don't like it. Yeah. But I, can, I couldn't have imagined that before, but your palate does change. And you do get to a place where you look at a, loaf, a piece of bread and you think, I just don't really want that um, mm -hmm. as much as I would want something else. So, so, but I think it's no reason, you know, I think it's fine not to be able to imagine that. It's just enough to know that you just have to get to, you know, try it for a month and see if you get to that point of feeling that way. I think the other crucial thing that I would add to this, all of this advice is it's important to um, use natural fats because we don't know the effects of these uh, unnatural industrial vegetable oils. That's one of the things that I go into a lot in my book, but you know, sunflower, safflower, canola oil, rapeseed oil, I mean, all those oils that are produced using a medical catalyst through a you know, 17 step process in a, in, in a, in a chemical plant, that's how you get those oils. Um, and I write a lot about the problems with them, how they, especially when heated, they oxidize, they create hundreds of oxidation products that end up in the food. If you're, you're frying or cooking food in them, the oxidation, remember, that's why we take antioxidants is oxidation causes inflammation. So you do not want to be cooking or using those oils in your kitchen 
And so part of this transformation is to, to go back to using what our, you know, our grandparents used, which are natural fats, which may sound horrendous to you, but like, you know, butter, lard, tallow, ghee, coconut oil, all of those were, are high in saturated fats and will not oxidize. So you want me to talk about kids? Yeah, well, I, 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 well not so much even kids. The, the key thing here is, yeah, so what you've just said is brilliant, by the way. Uh, I'm totally with you. If, if it's trans fats, if it's you know, in, grown in a lab as opposed to, uh, you know, natural, uh, I'd go as far as to say my personal belief is it's, they, are, they can be very, very cancerous. And, you know, I told my mum and dad off the other day massively, they were well, doing right now, Steve because dad had uh, a week in hospital, uh, sadly, a few weeks ago, collapsed, and uh, my mum's got early, on, early onset dementia. And I went in the kitchen, they went, look, we're doing everything right now. And I went, what are you cooking in? And they went, oh, it's vegetable oil. I went, ah, you've obviously not read any of my books, mum and dad, because vegetable oil isn't made of vegetables, <laughs> you know, so you're absolutely right. So uh, avoid those fats, move to the healthy fats, so get the good fats, all the ones you've just mentioned, the, the olive oils, extra virgin olive oil, uh, the coconut oils, let's get those into our pantry at home, into our kitchen. Uh, and just to talk about that little journey of, uh, if you like to bring it back around to the kids, your, your own son, and how you, uh, how you change your pantry before you start so you yeah. take away all that temptation. Well, I think, um, yes. So you have to get rid of all the things in your pantry that are going to tempt you. You just have to get rid of them. And and the, like the cereal, the boxes of cereals and the stashes of candy and whatever else there is in there, they just have to go so that you're not tempted. And then you need to, the most fundamental thing, and this is especially with kids, you need to not assume that you are superhuman and have the superpower to resist all the things that you've eaten or that you've wanted to eat for you know decades. And so you need to replace, you need to stock your pantry with all the things that you that are better for you that you will go to when you have cravings. Like, you know, pork rinds are a fantastic replacement for you know salty, crunchy chip-like thing. Or I'm just talking what's in our pantry. Um, nuts are pretty good, although they are uh, they are very dense in calories and they have a lot of what's called omega-6 fatty acids, which also cause inflammation. So not too much snacking on nuts, but a lot of good cheeses to snack on. Um, and uh, we also have, there's all kinds of cheese crisps that are being made now, crackers that are basically made out of cheese, so they don't have any carbs in them. Those are wonderful to use as crackers or to just use, you know, they're also crunchy and salty. Um, dark chocolate. Um, I know certain uh, researchers in our field who live on dark chocolate. <laughs> um, but that, you know, kids come to like that. And then there are all these keto bars some of them are really keto. Some of them are not. You have to check. They might could be low in sugar, but still very high in carbohydrates. So you really need to check the labels. The ones that, um, yeah, I don't know what you have in the UK, but we have in our refrigerator boxes of those. And I have sent them with my son to school, mm -hmm. to put it in the refrigerator at school where the teachers all promptly ate them up. Um, so I had to send another box to school. And, uh, but, you know, for kids, it is a matter of, of, of sending them, with, giving them alternatives, right? They cannot be the only kid who doesn't have some fun bar to pull out of their lunch bag, you know, at lunchtime. You need to give them a lower carb option that also looks fun. And, um, and then we have a rule in our house where, um, where you just have to eat your meal first 
And then if you're desperate and still want some, we have low, we have low carb ice cream. If you desperately want to have some treat like that, you must fill up on good food first. Um, and so, you know, in our house, like we, we make sure the kids have, you know, a really good dinner. Um, and, and that is like, it's the one thing you can do, especially if you can't control your child out during the daytime. Yeah. But what you can do is just try to make their, make them full on good foods. And, um, and then I guess the other thing to do, I think is, is to recognize that they're seriously, you know, eating disorders and eating cravings are a real thing. And let's not downplay how powerful that is for people, for many people. Like if they eat a little bit of something, they have to eat the whole, you know, little bit of, you know, of chips and they've got to eat the whole bag. So again, it's a matter of trying to find those weak spots, those moments in the day, that time, you know, when you have a weak spot and putting something else right there in your path before you get to the stuff that you shouldn't eat. If Whether it's low carb ice cream is better than high carb ice cream. Yeah. Um, you know, something to take the edge off your hunger because it's when you're hungry that you are at your weakest. Um, and you need to have a bunch of go-to healthy things. Like I cannot tell you how much fried cheese has saved my life, but like <laughs> fried cheese is so delicious. Yeah. And it's completely filling. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not always realistic at any time of day, but it's a really good option. And isn't that amazing? I bet you before you did your research, if somebody went to you, eat that fried cheese, it's healthy, you'd go, what complete nonsense. Yeah. I make this chicken pate and it used to be my guilty pleasure every Christmas. And it's like, I used to go, I know it's not good for you. We put so much butter in there. You know, the offal can't be that healthy from animals. And we'd make this pate as a family. We'd all sit there loving it, enjoying it, and putting it on toast, thinking, well, it's really unhealthy. Not to know that actually the only bit that's unhealthy was the toast that it was going on. And now every Christmas we put our pate on other things other than toast and sit there eating it going, isn't life fantastic? We're now eating what we want to eat. And actually it's really healthy. Yeah. It's a great joy not to feel guilty about the foods that you find so pleasurable. I mean, that is also part of it, that, that you come to these foods that are so delicious that you used to eat with so much guilt and self-loathing and that now they become a source of real joy, like the drippings off of a roast chicken. I mean, those are just divine. I used to yeah. fight my father over like who gets to scrape the pan and <laughs> eat the black you know, stuff with the butter. And I mean, I just now I, it's so great not to feel guilty about that. Yeah. And to say, no, you know what, instead this is going to completely fill me up and it's, and, and I'm, and I'm not going to be hungry anymore. So I'm going to do a couple more quick plugs for you. Uh, the Big Fat Surprise, it was written four or five years ago, if I remember right, and yet it's so up to date because, well, it'll never go out of date because it is just the, the history. It reads like a novel of how we went from being a healthy, westernized culture to an unhealthy one based on wrong research, corrupt research, funded research. And it just details the story of, from Ansel Keys onwards that, that in, in, in a way that I've not seen anybody else write. Uh, uh, so it's really a great, great read. And then if somebody wants to, you know, they take your advice, they realize that fat's healthy, they lose lots and lots of weight, they feel great, their blood pressure comes down, uh, all their profiles, their sugar levels come down, and they go, that was all because of the advice Nina gave me. 
Tell me how they find your not-for-profit organization and give you a little bit back. How do they do that? That's very nice of you to offer that. Well, our group is the Nutrition Coalition, and our website is nutritioncoalition, one word, dot U-S. So it's pretty easy. You can go there. We really do rely entirely upon public donations in order to do our work. So yes, any contributions are most welcome and they can, we can take donations from anywhere in the world and we really appreciate it. Um, we are working hard. We are actually working hard with policymakers in DC um, and you would be maybe encouraged and surprised to know that there are many members of our Congress who really get this issue. They really understand um, that they, they yeah. many of them, they just, you know, you talk to them and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember granddaddy. He grew <laughs> eggs and bacon every morning for breakfast and he was literally 95. He's like, um, you know, they really get it. And so and they represent people from all over the country and they they understand there's a lot of understanding among policymakers about how there must be something wrong with those guidelines. Um, mm -hmm. And so we our job, it, it's just that nobody has showed up in our nation's capital making these arguments. They haven't heard them before. There might be another thing, there might be another thing, Nina, as well, that realistically, it's not in the government's uh, benefit, really, for us all to live, say, 20 years longer, because the second we stop being a taxpayer, we become a burden, we go from being a, an asset to a liability. And if we were all to go and, and eat the right foods, then, even though we have to certainly in the UK fund all of the health uh, of everybody, we have a great national health service, but the cost of us all living 20 years longer would be such a burden that it, rather than the NHS sort of bankrupting our country, it might be pensions. So I think that we're going to do everything we can certainly in the UK to lobby to get the right advice out there. But my cynical side would say the only reason we'd ever fail was A, one or two reasons. A, there was too much money coming into the treasury from the pharmaceutical companies and the food companies, therefore they wouldn't uh, get rid of the guidelines, or they were too worried about pensions. So, uh, but let's keep fighting because we have to win this. At least let's get the... I, I want to just, it's a very interesting subject that you bring up, but I want to say that 15% of the U.S. discretionary spending is on uh, diabetes. Wow. So... When you take into consideration, that's just diabetes. So, I mean, when you take into consideration the cost of healthcare, it's bankrupting, is yeah. bankrupting our public, you know, all of our firefighters, our police departments, all of our public services, towns yeah. are going bankrupt yeah. based on the costs of, of the, 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 the early retirement of people, the health costs, the disability costs, the people who are on disability and can't even be in the workforce mainly due to diabetes or much of it due to diabetes. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't yeah, know. How I think that was a really good point there because you can live with diabetes uh, for a, a long, long time in a, in a disabilities way, which does prevent you for many people from working. So actually your point probably trumps my point there because actually they need to cure diabetes because you're still going to live longer, but not be able to contribute, you know, the workforce. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think this is an equally powerful argument is for many people and especially in, in, in parts of government that we can, we have, we missed our recruitment targets for the military 
And we have a problem of the military getting fatter while they serve in the military, although they're getting plenty of exercises. You and I know that doesn't entirely work because they feed the military. You know, their energy food is, is a big thing of pasta. And, yeah. and so they're getting fatter. Yeah. Um, so we are, we are facing a situation where we don't have enough deployable troops. And yeah. that is a very scary thing for many people in government who want to have, you know, and we, we don't, you know, our world's not exactly like a, a happy place at the moment. So I think that, you know, there's that issue that is, is very resonant for a lot of people. Um, so I think that, you know, in terms of military spending, I'm sorry, military readiness and overall healthcare spending, which is so burdensome, I, you know, there's a, there's a combination of arguments here that I think uh, really work for a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, just remind those politicians that it used to be called sugar diabetes. You know, we changed yeah. the name because the sugar industry didn't like it. It was called sugar diabetes because it's sugar and all those things, carbohydrates, that turn into sugar that create diabetes and nothing else. So we, we have got something we should be uh, uh, loving there. Can I just uh, pause one second there? You were waving for one more question. What was it? Legacy, Legacy yeah. Um, Nina, thank you for absolutely brilliant today. Really insightful. I think you've given a lot of hope to a lot of people that it can be done. You've said it's hard in the first few weeks, and it's good to get that point across because that's, like you say, when a lot of people give up. But get through it. The grass is greener on the other side. Uh, and one question, well, two questions to, to finish on that I, I ask everybody uh, on our uh, Fat and Furious podcasts. Uh, first question is, What's the one takeaway bit of a, you know, we've talked, touched on five or six topics there. What's the one main takeaway from, from the last hour, do you think? I think the easiest takeaway is fat does not make you fat. Do not fear fat. Brilliant. <laughs> and, and the second one that I ask uh, uh, all contributors uh, is um, what would you be, you know, what would you want? your legacy to be, you know, mine is to say you help people live healthy and happier for longer. Uh, what, what, would, what would be the legacy you'd like to leave? Oh, um, I think that if I can help change the dietary guidelines to at least to at least do no harm, that would be a tremendous contribution to society. I hope we can get there. That is truly, that is really my hope. Well, that's a great, great, great goal to go for. I will make sure we do links everywhere we can for your not-for-profit organisation. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And, uh, and, and if it's inspired anybody to really understand the story of how we got it all so wrong globally, then this is a great, great read. Nina, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you, Steve. It's just been a total pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Thanks. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fat and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.